0: Again, good morning, glad to see you, and we are continuing on in our study of the Gospel of Mark, so we're going to be in chapter 14 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow in the bulletin, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, and I need to start off with an apology, and the apology is I told you something inaccurate two weeks ago, and I hate doing that, and um, and I... <laughs> Just in my own Bible reading, a few days after that, I found a refutation of something I said to you, and I thought, "Man, that's not good." So, uh, and you know, it's not just that I've, when I preach, that you hear these things, but they're put on the podcast. So I thought, well, if I put error on the podcast, I probably should put a whoops on the podcast. So this is the whoops, you know, if we post this one, because uh, I'm not apologizing at eleven o'clock. <clears throat> Kidding, I will. <laughs> but no, it, and it's not a huge deal. But that, but, uh, but two weeks ago. I preached on the blind man, Bartimaeus, who was healed by Jesus of his, of his blindness. And I, I made the statement that he was the only individual in the Gospels who called Jesus the Son of David. He was the only individual that called Jesus the Son of David. Then a few days later, I'm, I'm reading in Matthew, and uh, it's the Canaanite woman coming to, to have her, her daughter healed. And she says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I thought, well, that kind of challenges that thesis a little bit. So uh, I, I don't think this is going to shake up anybody's Christian walk, but... I would say this, I'm not going to preach on it again, I'm about to get to our text. But, uh, but, but you know, r- really, when people said that to Jesus, things did happen. And I don't mean that in the sense that it's some kind of magical incantation, that just the phrasing has magical power. But um, in the history of the church, that's been an ancient prayer that people have reached for. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, on us. So uh, let's, let's, let's hang on to that prayer. Because, uh, because at least a couple of people in the Gospels did. <clears throat> All right now mark fourteen, beginning in verse twelve i uh along with my other admissions of my my failures i I, I would say that, that the uh the worst job I do at being uh, an attentive listener or a good listening pastor would be around eight twenty seven on Sunday mornings or about ten fifty eight On Sunday mornings, and for obvious reasons, I'm not saying this to give myself a pass. I'm not. If 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 you have tried to talk to me right before worship and I have been less than attentive, that's my fault. It's not your fault. But you know how it goes when you've got something that's big and it's facing you, um, or something stressful, or if you're under duress. That it's you know we just tend to be preoccupied, and it's hard to give it your, your full attention. And when somebody. When you know that somebody is preoccupied, that they've got a lot on their mind, but they do give you their full attention, uh, it's really noteworthy. And here's what I want you to think about. You know, it's easy just to kind of jump into this text and read it. Um, This is about Jesus having the Passover with His disciples and and instituting the Lord's Supper. And we as Christians can just kind of parachute in and hear it and then jump out and, and forget the fact that this is part of a book. And where are we in the book? We are the night in which Jesus in just a few hours is going to be arrested and then the next day undergo the worst thing anyone has ever been through. And that's historically theologically accurate. The next day he'll go through the worst thing anyone has ever been through. And it's so bad that just a few verses after our text in Mark 14 he tells the disciples he said I just I'm overcome with sorrow. And I'm distressed. The English translations are really kind of weak. He's saying, I I am in absolute turmoil. And right before that, when he knows he's going into the grinder, he gives incredible time and energy into this. Uh, This is something that really, in a lot of American worship, and I'm not saying this to throw rocks at anybody, nor to congratulate us, but... The the thing that He's giving time and energy to is something that really more and more has moved to the edges of American evangelical worship. And what I want us to see is Jesus, when He has literally the weight of the world on Him, is giving His time and energy to His disciples who He says are all going to leave Him that night so that they will have something that will help them and it will help us. Mark 14, beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And He said to them, This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, there is, there's nothing like Your Word the oracles of you, the living words of you. So please give us ears to hear them and work in us. We don't even know what you need to do inside of us. We may think we do, but we don't know it like you know it. We are fully known to you, so work in our hearts as you need to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When, uh, when I was in seminary and I lived in a house full of guys, I remember uh, one night we were talking and, and one of my housemates, a friend of mine, he, he said something. I'd never heard anyone else say this, but my ears perked up. He said, you know, sometimes when I'm just, uh, when I'm just thinking, in you know, a stream of consciousness thinking, I'll think of something that, that I don't like, like a painful memory, or I'll think of something that really embarrassed me, and I'll start humming. And I'll hum to, like, block it out so that I can't hear the thing that bothered me. And when he said that, I just kind of went, huh. And I thought, I do that too. You know, and I'd never heard anybody say that. Maybe everybody knows that, but I just, I'd never heard anybody say that. But I realized I do that too, that just when your thoughts, you know, it could be just lying in bed before you fall asleep or at the stoplight or whatever, that, that you're just thinking and you remember something that embarrassed you. Or you remember something really painful and you just you turn up the music, you start humming, you start singing, just to, just to block it out, because remembering hurts. At some level, it hurts. Another example, um, think about this. Sometimes you'll have a person who, who realizes it, it would be beneficial for me to sit down with a good counselor. And they're bad counselors, and they're counterproductive counselors, but there are good counselors. And uh, so, you know, like, hey, maybe I need to, to sit down, and I know somebody I'd like to sit down with, but... But then sometimes there are obstacles to doing that. And it might be, well, I just don't have time. Or I'm kind of pinched for funds to do that. Or maybe it, I, I can't find the counselor that I really click with. and that, Those can all be somewhat legitimate. But sometimes the obstacle with sitting down with somebody to, to talk through something I need to talk through, to work through something I need to work through, is because if I sit down and do that, he or she is going to make me remember. And I don't want to remember. Because if I remember it, I'll feel it. And I don't want to feel it. Remembering can be very hard. Remembering, there's happy remembering, and there can be really painful remembering. I mean, you could tell your stories, and I could tell mine. Now, here's why I bring this up. This passage is not going to make sense the way we want it to make sense. If we just come to it as Christians and say, oh, this is when the Lord's Supper started. Although, that's true. But what... Let's begin by saying this. This is a group of Jewish men in the first century in Jerusalem who are celebrating what? The Passover. And I want to start there before we get to the Lord's Supper part. It's a Passover. And the Passover was all about remembering. Now, here's the question. Was the Passover to prompt you toward happy remembering or toward painful remembering? Was the Passover supposed to move God's people toward happy remembering or painful remembering? Well, let's look at that. And and I want to just develop two points here. First off, the sign of the Passover, and then the fulfillment of the Passover. Pretty straightforward, all right? The sign of the Passover and the fulfillment of the Passover. Let's start with the sign. And you may or may not know your Old Testament on this. I, I never assume any common level of, of knowledge or background with this. So let's look at what was the Jewish Passover. And here's the thing. The term Passover, the Hebrew word for Passover in the Hebrew Bible can mean at least three things and maybe more. I just want to focus on three. Okay, The Hebrew word for Passover can mean at least three things. Maybe more, but let's just look at three. The first, the big one would be the actual Passover. Now, what was the actual Passover? This is in the book of Exodus, around chapter 12. And it comes after this list of plagues that God sends. And these plagues are punishment on the gods of the Egyptians. It's a judgment on the gods of the Egyptians and on Pharaoh's resistance to God's insistence that His people be let go to follow Him and worship Him, released from slavery. Well, in these plagues, when God would send them, He would make a distinction. And in some of the descriptions, this is very clear. He would make a distinction between the Egyptians, and they would receive the plagues, you know, the gnats, the darkness, whatever. And His people, who were living in the land of Goshen, they would not be affected by the plague. But on the last one, the last one was the worst one. And this was the one that when God sent it, Pharaoh finally said, Leave. Go. It was a plague in which the firstborn in every household died. Now, on that last plague, God did not say, I'm going to send this final plague, and this won't happen in Goshen. It won't happen with my people. It'll only happen in Egyptian households. That's not what he says, if you read it. He says, I want my people to take a lamb... And sacrifice that lamb, and take the blood from that sacrifice, and put it on the on the door the doorpost, the door of your home. Because if you do that, I will pass over you, as I execute my wrath on the firstborn of the Egyptians. But but what would happen if you did not do that? Then you too would be visited. In other words, on this one it's not just that God makes the distinction. God's, God does make a distinction. But on that night, the reason there was a distinction was, was because of a visible thing. It was the blood of the Lamb identified with you and your house. So when Israel did that and God visited the Egyptians in His wrath and did not visit the Israelites, that was the Passover. And it's interesting, when you read it, it doesn't say that uh, my my destroying angel will do this. God is very clear. I will do that. I will strike down the firstborn. Exodus says that. The Psalms do that. I will pass over you. So that's the big one. That's kind of Passover with a capital P. The Passover is also the Lamb. Sometimes in, in the Hebrew Bible, the Lamb... Itself is, act, is actually called the Passover, and this actually shows up in our, in our text. Look in verse twelve. It says, "On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed." Now, this English translation says the Passover lamb. In Greek, it just says when they sacrificed the Passover. What's it talking about? It's saying that lamb can also be called the Passover. Okay, so it's the event, it's the lamb, but it's the meal. It was the meal by which God's... And this was God's idea. It's not like the people just thought this up. This was the meal by which they remembered all these things. And this is in Exodus 12 and 13 and other parts of, other parts of the law. What would the meal involve? All right, you would roast that lamb. And there were certain ways that you would prepare it and do that. There was unleavened bread... The meal would come at the beginning of this seven-day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You used unleavened bread as a commemoration that when we left Egypt that night, we left in a hurry. There wasn't time to prepare bread the way you normally would. We we just, um, you know, put on your shoes, grab your stuff, take the unleavened bread. That's how we ate: the lamb, the unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. And that was a remembrance of the bitterness of their lives. Under the taskmasters in the slavery, they had in Egypt. Now, let's go back to the text. This is first century, early first century Jerusalem, and I've seen different estimates, but some estimates would say at least, not at most, at least two hundred thousand extra people came into Jerusalem for Passover. Think about that. I mean, you think about. When you, when you have a, uh, like a football stadium that holds 100,000 a, a people, that's a huge stadium. Double that and think about that many people coming into an area without a modern road system, without supermarkets, without, uh, without high-rises, without hotels. So it was packed at Passover in Jerusalem. And, and along with people, you would have just tons of lambs. You think you know, like in October, you get a weird convergence of pumpkins. You know, like you have a, a a strange density of pumpkins in any given area. This month, there will be sort of a bizarre density of turkeys in the city of Greenville. Like you know, kind of like no other time, there'll be a lot of turkeys. If you had grown up with that, think about that. That in this month, it was the Jewish month of uh, Abib. It came to be called uh, Nisan. Late March early April, around when we celebrate Easter. Um, Around that time, if you had lived in that area, really any Jewish area, you would have been accustomed to the the bleating, not bleeding, although there was that, the bleating of uh, lambs. You would have been accustomed to the smell coming from your courtyard and other people's courtyards of uh, roasting lamb. That, That would have brought a lot of nostalgia to you. God, if you look in Exodus 12 and 13, God says, you do this to remember. This meal is a memorial. The reason I'm giving you this meal is for you to remember the Passover. Now, think about this. Think about the, in, a, in a Jewish household, you could have in a Jewish household what you sometimes find in Christian households and uh, professing Christian households. And, and, it, and it's where the tone of things can go a couple of different directions. It could go very us versus them, or it could go maybe what we might call more more liberal. And here's what I mean by that. The us versus them would be like, you know, we're the, we're the people, we're the ones who get it, and those are the bad people. This happens in all religions. It happens in Judaism, happens in Christianity. Like, we're the people, we get it, we're the special ones, and, and they're, they're the problem, and we need to avoid them. They're the problem. Now, think about if you were in a Jewish house that trended toward the us versus them thing. And, you know, when you had a Passover meal, probably the father or the grandfather in that home would, would do the explaining about what these things mean. You know, the, 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 uh, perhaps a son in the family would say, why is this night like no other night? And the leader would explain, this means this, and this means that. Think about if you were in a Jewish home that was sort of like, we're the people of God and and, and they're the pagans, they're they're the problems. Think about what it would do if you just had one inquisitive kid. Well, that's redundant. So, in other words, if you had a kid. And he said, why did we have to put blood on our doors? Because then what do you have to answer? Because, son... Or daughter, if, if we didn't put blood on our doors, God would visit us and not pass over. In other words, you'd have to deal with the fact that that night highlighted that we're no better than anybody else. Ours is a common problem, right? But, okay, but then, what if your family trended the other way? Christians can do this, too, where you say, like, you know, really this meal... Is so important to our tradition. This is so important to our identity as a people and our culture. When we do this, we feel just the cultural richness of our experience. All it would take would be one kid, and you, this, ha, this must have happened to say, What passed over? I, we keep saying Passover. What passed over? And you'd have to deal with the reason we're doing this meal is because God told us to. And what passed over was God as He was slaying the firstborn in every single household. And think about that. On the one hand, it would be a very joyful remembering if you really remembered what you were supposed to remember. God came through. God came rescues us. God loved us and delivered us when we couldn't deliver ourselves. But what else would you have to remember? You would have to remember, we could not deliver ourselves. We were the losers in Egypt. And we couldn't get out. And even after we had been through all all those tears and all that pain, if that blood wasn't on our household, we would be visited. In a way, you don't want to be visited. You'd have to remember all of that. It was supposed to push you to do that. Well, that was the sign. This text is not just a group of men celebrating the sign, but what's unbelievable about Mark 14 is you are simultaneously seeing the sign and the fulfillment. Now, how do you see that? Go back to this. Go back to the fact that when you had a group of people having this meal... That there would probably the father, or if it was a setting like this where you've got teacher and students, uh, there'd be somebody who would who would lead you through it, who would explain it to you, and they would do things like take take the unleavened bread and say, "This is the bread of our affliction. It has no leaven in it because we left in haste that night." Or uh, you know, in later Passover celebrations, there'd be there'd be salted water, and he might take that and say, "This this water is salty." To remember our tears under the grinding pain and affliction of slavery. And to remember the salt of the Red Sea that we passed through. You know, somebody just walk you through and say, this means this, this means that. So they're having the Passover, and Jesus is obviously going to be the one who who has that role that that night, right? They're rabbi. And he does something that no devout Jew would have dreamed of doing. He takes one of the elements and he reinterprets it. He takes unleavened bread and instead of saying from Deuteronomy 16, this is the bread of our affliction, he holds it up and he says, take, this is my body. And you and I might be accustomed to this, that must have blown their minds. No one changed that wording. This is my body. What is he saying? My body secures your Passover. Without my body, you can have no Passover. And then he took the cup. Now this is interesting because wine was not one of the required elements of the Passover when you look in the law of God. It doesn't talk about the wine, but just over time, funny how that happens... Over time, uh, multiple cups of wine became part of the, the official way to celebrate the Passover. And so at one of these points, he takes the cup of wine. Now again, you talk about something that no devout Jew ever would have said. Jesus takes the cup and he refers to the blood of the covenant. Now that expression, the Jews knew. Moses used that expression. He used it at Mount Sinai and you know the people saw all the fire and the smoke and the thundering voice, and they said, we're not going to talk to him. You go talk to him. In fact, they couldn't go up on the mountain anyway, but they were scared to be near the mountain. Moses, you go talk to him, and you come back and say what he says, and we'll do whatever, whatever he says. Ha. So Moses goes, and he receives the law of God, and he comes back, and he, and he reads the law of God to the people, and they say, we'll, we'll do whatever the covenant says. And sacrifices were made and Moses took blood from the sacrifices and he sprinkled it on the Israelites and said, this is the blood of the covenant. That's weird, to sprinkle, to, to splatter blood on people. What was that doing? He was saying, you didn't go up there, I went up there. But that blood, that sacrifice connects you and what happened up there that this covenant is not just made between God and Moses. This is not something detached from your real lives. Because of the blood of the covenant, what happened there connects to you by the blood of the covenant. They'd heard that expression in the book of Zechariah. God talks about the blood of the covenant. He says, there's the blood of my covenant. But no human being had ever said, this is... Is my blood of the covenant. A rabbi or a teacher or someone quoting the scriptures might talk about the blood of the covenant. No one had ever said, This is my blood of the covenant. What is he saying? He is saying, I am the lamb to which all the other lambs pointed. When John the Baptist pointed me out, do you remember that? When John the Baptist pointed me out and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, I am the Lamb to which all the Passover lambs point. For you to participate in everything that God is doing in His covenant, you must have me. You have to be identified with my blood. Now think about this. Think about what we're about to do. You know, sometimes sermon applications, it may be, you don't get to apply this <clears throat> until 20 years from now. Not this one. You're about to apply. And my prayer has been that when, if you're partaking this morning, that the things we're talking about will be in technicolor in a way they never have been. But think about that our meal, like the Passover, is a looking back. But in some ways, not like the Passover. It's also a looking ahead. How is the Lord's Supper for us a looking back? Think about this. Um, think, about, think about the part of this passage that sort of makes it hard just to preach on the Passover. You know, did you, you know, there's something we haven't gotten to yet. What have we not gotten to that's right in the middle? Judas Iscariot. Let's read it again. Verse 17, When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What is Judas Iscariot? Judas Iscariot is a Jew that God does not pass over. He had circumcision. He had descent from Abraham. He had three years of unprecedented, nothing like it, instruction and exposure to the Messiah himself. He had the Scriptures... He had synagogue, he had temple. But at the end of the day, he is a Jew who is not passed over. What does that have to do with us? Here's something to think about when we come to this table in a few minutes. Usually when you think about, why, why is it so hard for me to read the Bible? Well, it shouldn't be this hard. You know. After all this time, it should not be this hard. Why is it so hard for me to read the Bible? Why do I struggle so much in prayer? I know it's good, and I benefit from it when I do it. Why do I struggle with it? Why in the world is it so hard for me to get up and go to church? Thanks for being here. Okay. But why is that even a discussion inside of myself at this point in my life? And we could say it's lots of things. You know, it's, it's season of life, it's fatigue, it's, it's uh, distractions, it's season of life maybe with young children for you. I, I don't know. And those things are, are we, we can talk about those things. But typically, you know what is a huge component of it, why, why I still struggle so much with the Bible and prayer or church or Christian friendships or whatever, is that I keep forgetting that without Jesus, that God would look at me and have to say, woe to you. It would have been better for you if you had never been born. And that's not because God is not loving. God is love. He is love. He loves us and the world so much that He is upset about sin and has to be just. The Passover... For the Israelite, the Lord's Supper for the Christian was an opportunity regularly, and we get to do it way more regularly, to look back and go, Jesus, without you, I would not have been passed over. And I would deserve what I get. But because of you, I can be passed over. And not just passed over, but embraced and adopted and know that I'm clean in the sight of God not just for a month but forever this is the time to look back but it's also a looking ahead and I wish uh, oh for more time let me just say this the the, the strangest verse in some ways in this passage is the last one in in our passage verse 25 truly I say to you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? There's been a lot of ink spilled about that that verse. Here's what Jesus seems to be saying. Yes, we're having the Passover. I'll have the wine with you. But now that I've told you that this is my blood of the covenant by which all these people are going to be forgiven, I'm not having wine with you anymore. Until later. And what's the later? Oh man, read the prophets. It says in Isaiah 25 that one of these days when human history comes to its consummation and the Messiah rules on the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, one of the marks of that is feasting. And it talks about meat that drips with fat. Um, As one person said, heaven will not be a low-calorie affair. And it talks about well-aged wine. And Jesus says, after this cup, I'm not drinking with you anymore until that drinking. Did you know that one day, if you're in Christ... You will be happy forever. You think I'm trying to cast a spell over you? You think you think this is fiction? It's the Word of God. The word of God that human history moves toward feasting, and if you are in the just grind of a career that will just it's always demanding more of you. If you are in in the pain of depression, if you are in a relationship that is an incredible discouragement to you, uh, if you cannot find employment at all, or employment that suits your training, or that you think is, is your calling in life, if you're watching a child just drift away from you, you've got to know this that this is a looking ahead to a feast when you can feast with all the believers from all over the world and know that everything that was fallen has been made right. This is a foretaste of it. And I want to end with this. Um, I've hung on to this email that I got years ago, and it was from a... um, a young woman, she and her husband cared for several foster children and uh, would, would bring these children to worship. And she emailed me about what happened one morning when a, a I think about a six-year-old girl that they were caring for saw the Lord's Supper for the first time. She had never seen it. And so she's watching all of a sudden all these people walk up to this table and eat food and then go sit down. So I'm going to read this so you won't think I'm I'm, uh, making it better. All right. uh, She said, something happened this Sunday that I thought you might like to hear about. This Sunday was the first time our little girl's name was in the service for communion. She refused to go to children's church, so she stayed with us. I was a little worried, but she made it through the sermon. Clearly a special child. (laughs) When she saw communion, she asked about it. After I explained, she said, looking at it just makes me want to cry. And tears were in her eyes. And I could tell she was really thinking about how Jesus died for us. And do you know what she saw? She saw what is there. She saw what's there. This is good for our souls. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father... We thank you for Christ Jesus, our Passover. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the Lamb to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We need your blood on our doors and our work and on our dinner table, on our bodies and on our souls and on our off time and our privacy and our public life. We need you, Lamb of God. We praise You for what You have done to bring us to the Father. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet looked to Jesus as the Lamb to take away his or her sin, work in their hearts. Cause them even this morning to look to You and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And do so. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.